As we continue our series in Matthew's Gospel, let me invite you to open this evening to chapter 19, where we will pick up our studies now in verse 1. So Matthew 19, 1 through 15. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Then some children were brought to him, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Now, Father, as always, we need your help if we are to really grasp the meaning of your word. And... God, we need help not only to grasp just what the words say and what Jesus had in mind and what uh, the others in this passage are saying, um, but for us to really grasp them at a heart level so that we embrace what is being taught here and love it and apply it and believe it. We need your help. So grant it to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, these first 15 verses of Matthew 19 present us with three marvelous glimpses into the greatness of our Savior. Three splendid looks at the wonder of our Jesus. In verse 2, we are reminded once again of his compassion and power. In verses 3 through 12, we are treated to his powerful teaching. And then in verses 13 through 15, we are shown his heart for children. And so we're going to spend some time this evening having a look at and hopefully marveling at each of the three. Jesus' compassion and power, Jesus' powerful teaching, and Jesus' heart for children. And we'll begin with his compassion and power 
in verse 2. Now in verse 1, Jesus comes from Galilee into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And we're told in verse 2 that large crowds followed him which may mean that the people followed him from Galilee and into his new locale, or it could mean that once he arrived there, the crowds began following him, or maybe it was both. But at any rate, we're told that large crowds followed him, verse 2, and we are told that he healed them there. He healed them there. And we may be tempted to skim fairly quickly past those words there at the end of verse 2, because they are so brief, and because the next passage uh, is is quite remarkable in the things that Jesus is going to teach, and so we may just uh, rush along to that, or we may skim over what's said in verse 2 because we say, well, of course Jesus healed them. That's what Jesus does, right? This is the gospel of Matthew. Of course Jesus heals these people. But we shouldn't rush ahead too quickly uh, over this brief verse or over what it says, or on to the next things in the passage. We shouldn't rush ahead too quickly, because although Jesus' healing of the sick is not not at all uncommon in the Gospels, and though Matthew covers this particular round of healing in just a few brief words here, yet it still is an amazing thing to read what we read in verse 2. This is an amazing display both of the compassion of Jesus on the hurting and of his power to do something about their hurt. I've had occasion recently to be once again inside the phenomenal facilities of that jewel in our city, Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And I'm so thankful that we have such a medical center right here in our city. I'm thankful as a pastor I'm thankful as a dad. I'm thankful just as a citizen of this city. It's stunning, really, when you think about that hospital, when you consider the enormity of the campus and the billions of dollars uh, that have gone into it and the millions of dollars of equipment that are in use there and all the doctors and nurses that are bustling about when you walk into that place and all the years of medical research carried out both here and in many other places that's being put into play every day in that hospital and all of these things being leveraged for the happy purpose of helping and healing sick children. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. But then set your eyes on Matthew 19 too and observe all these masses of humanity. Look at all these people and all the sick among them, perhaps some of them lepers, probably many of them crippled or lame, mixed into the crowd, surely various other kinds of ailments as well. And there's just one physician. And he doesn't have any of the advances in medicine for which we are now so thankful. He knows them, but he's not employing them. He doesn't have any of the facilities and equipment which we're grateful for in our city. And he healed them. Without any of these things, he healed them. Just with the touch of his hand or a few words from his lips or however he did it from case to case and from person to person, he healed them. This is phenomenal power. Jesus could do with a word or with a touch what requires prodigious 
ingenuity on the part of us mere mortals. And what we are still sometimes unable to do, even in spite of all of our best efforts. And I make this comparison not at all to minimize what they are doing at Cincinnati Children's or at any other medical facility. Praise God for prodigious ingenuity. Praise God for extraordinary effort and ingenuity being put into the task of healing the sick. But I compare these massive efforts that we're thankful for with the simple words of verse 2 to try and help us see just how amazing these words are and how amazing this Jesus is here in Matthew 19. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them. Don't skim over that too fast in verse 2. Jesus had a hospital's worth of sick people coming to him with all manner of ailments, and he healed them. He is all-powerful. And not only powerful to heal, but he also cares about healing. He cares enough about mankind's suffering so as to exercise his power on behalf of these poor, hurting people. He is marvelous not only in his power, in other words, but in his compassion on people, on his concern for the hurting, his, in his pity toward the unwell. And I say to you that he's still the same powerful, compassionate Jesus Tonight. Now, there are specific reasons why Jesus performed so many healings during his earthly ministry in comparison with the apparent frequency of such healings today. But even though Jesus may not seem to intervene for miraculous healings in such a high percentage today as he did then, it's not because he's run short on his supply of compassion or of power, is it? No, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so tonight he still has the compassion to heal and he still has the power to heal. Any child in children's hospital tonight, any leper in India tonight, any poor soul in the psych ward in our city tonight, any ailing person in these pews. And even more importantly than that, as symbolized in his healings of the body, Jesus has the power and the compassion also to heal the ailing soul, does he not? And while he sometimes, for wise purposes, does not grant the healing of the body, the New Testament tells us he never holds back when someone comes to him in faith asking for the healing of their soul. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I urge you to call upon that name tonight. Whatever your ailment, body or soul, call upon the compassionate, powerful name of the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing tonight. Very simply, Jesus' compassion and power in verse 2. But then we also need to notice and to marvel at his powerful teaching in verses 3 through 12. His powerful teaching. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, verse 3, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And I think the tone of the question there in verse 3 is not, is there any reason at all why a man might divorce his wife? Is there any grounds for divorce at all, Jesus? Or is it disallowed altogether? I don't think that's what they're asking. Rather, I think they're asking, can a man divorce his wife for any reason he wants? 
I think that's the line of the question here. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? For any reason he wants, in other words? The question is rooted in the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, where Moses gives instructions for a scenario in which a man's wife, quote, finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. It might be helpful for you just to turn to Deuteronomy 24 for a few moments, and it will be helpful if I read to you those first four verses so that we know what's in the background here. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So, again, this question in verse 3 is rooted in this scenario of this wife finding no favor in her husband's eyes because he has found some indecency in her and him writing her a certificate of divorce. Now, the commentator R.T. France is so helpful here because he points out that while it is assumed in Deuteronomy 24 that such divorces will in fact happen, yet he says nowhere in Deuteronomy 24 nor in the rest of the Old Testament is divorce explicitly approved. Let me say that again. France points out that while it's assumed in Deuteronomy 24 that such divorces will take place, nowhere in Deuteronomy 24 or in the rest of the Old Testament is divorce explicitly approved, condoned. Moses gives instructions there in Deuteronomy 24, France points out. Moses gives instructions about what is not allowable between two divorcees later down the road after their divorce. But Moses doesn't explicitly approve of the divorce itself, France says. And yet, he also says, this passage was universally accepted among Jesus' contemporaries as permitting a husband to divorce his wife. People in the day thought this passage meant that divorce was permitted by a husband to his wife. And with that assumption in place that Deuteronomy 24 permits divorce, there had come to be two schools of thought in Jesus' day as to the legitimate grounds for divorce. And the two schools were divided over, one, or over how one should interpret the reasons that are given for divorce in Deuteronomy 24.1. They were divided over how one should interpret what it means when we read that a man's wife finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now remember what we learned from R.T. France, namely Deuteronomy 24 assumes divorce will happen, but it doesn't explicitly approve of it. And yet, says France, the thinking 
of the day was that the passage does approve of divorce. It does permit it. And with that assumption made, the specific thinking was that Deuteronomy 24 permits divorce under the stipulations listed in verse 1. That's how they thought about it. What are the grounds for divorce? Well, what does Deuteronomy 24.1 say? Well, when a man's wife finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that's grounds for divorce. That's how they thought about this verse. And I say there were two schools of thought as to what they believed verse 1 allegedly permitted as the grounds for divorce. There was a conservative view which interpreted indecency there in verse 1 as referring to cases of sexual impropriety and which limited the grounds of divorce accordingly. Divorce was permitted in cases of sexual impropriety. And then there was a more permissive view which seized on the words, she finds no favor in his eyes, say a few commentators. And seizing on those words, they thought this was an allowance for divorce for any reason at all, for any scenario in which a man became ill-disposed to his wife. And with those two views in the background, the conservative view and the more permissive view, the questioners, now back in Matthew 19 and verse 3, the questioners are attempting to get Jesus to give his view. Is it lawful, Jesus, as some believe that it is, for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And notice in verse 3 that it's not an honest question. It's not an honest question. They're not coming to Jesus saying, we really want to know what's the right way to think about this. Notice, rather, the question is a test. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking this question. They're testing Jesus. They're either trying to get him, as William Hendrickson posits, to pick a side which will find him out of favor no matter how he answers, with the people on the other side of the debate. If he answers one way, then one group of people are unhappy with him. If he answers the other way, the other group of people are unhappy with him. That's the, that's, uh, the motive that William Hendrickson posits here for the question. The other possible motive, which I think is more likely, is asserted by R.T. France, namely that these Pharisees already know what Jesus thinks about these things, and they're trying to get him to state it because... His conservative take on divorce and remarriage, says France and says John Broadus as well, his conservative take will will be unpopular in the lax culture of the day, and that will get him in trouble. And his conservative take might ruffle Herod's feathers, who had divorced his wife, remember from chapter 14. And because Jesus' take here will be seen as not permitting divorce, Or if Jesus is seen here as not permitting divorce, that take may appear as though he's disagreeing with Moses in Deuteronomy 24, whom they think permits divorce. So they're trying to get Jesus in hot water, one way or the other. But Jesus, says William Hendrickson, does not avoid the question. This is one reason why he's great, isn't it? One reason why we marvel at him. He doesn't avoid this difficult question. And indeed, he gives a marvelous and powerful answer to the question by taking 
his questioners and by taking us, his readers now as well, back to the beginning of marriage, by taking us back to God's design for marriage as it is told us in the first two chapters of the Bible. If you want to understand marriage, you have to go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And Jesus goes there, here in verses 4 and 5. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, Genesis 1, and said, Genesis 2, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then listen, after he has quoted Genesis and particularly after he's quoted Genesis 2 there, listen to his logic in verse 6. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So he quotes Genesis 2. This, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, verse 6, they are no longer two but one flesh. And then therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So do you hear Jesus' line of reasoning? Do you hear the deduction he's making there from the Genesis 2 fact that marriage makes two people into one flesh? God has made the two one, he says in verse 6a. No longer two, but one. And therefore, verse 6b, we mustn't make them two again. That's the logical deduction Jesus draws from Genesis 2. You mustn't take what God has made one and break it into two again. If we go back to the design, if we go back to marriage's design in Genesis 2, we find two becoming one. And Jesus says, if God's design is that two become one, then we don't have any business making them two again. Now, that sounds even stronger, doesn't it, than even the more conservative view that we spoke of a few moments ago. Jesus seems to be saying, very simply, God's design for marriage gives no grounds for divorce. What are the grounds for divorce? Well, if you go back to Genesis 2, there aren't any, Jesus seems to be saying here. There aren't any. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then the Pharisees ask in verse 7, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And here R.T. France is helpful again because here he shows us that Moses didn't command divorce. Moses didn't command that someone had to give a certificate of divorce. Moses didn't command that the wife had to be sent away. Rather, he just spoke of the fact that divorce existed. They're misinterpreting here when they use the word command. Actually, they're not misinterpreting. They're just misrepresenting what is actually happening in Deuteronomy 24. Moses isn't commanding divorce. He is simply acknowledging its existence and then giving instructions for the aftermath. So these Pharisees already have things twisted here. But even still, we might wonder, along their same lines of thinking, why the instructions in Deuteronomy 24 even exist if God's design for marriage gives no grounds for divorce. 
And what does Jesus answer in verse 8? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. In other words, Moses assumed that divorce would happen and gave instructions concerning remarriage in Deuteronomy 24 because men's hearts are hard. Because he knew that some people are going to shatter God's design and because at least there needs to be some limitations in the aftermath of that. I think that's what Jesus means when he says that Moses permitted divorce. I don't believe that he's saying that Moses condoned divorce, that Moses said that divorce is okay in certain circumstances. France points out that he did not, that Moses did not condone, that Moses did not approve divorce in what he says in Deuteronomy 24. Rather, I think when Jesus says Moses permitted divorce, he's just saying that Moses accepted its reality in a fallen world as evidenced by the fact that particular instructions are given to divorcees in Deuteronomy 24. Moses accepted that it was a reality and he gave instructions concerning the aftermath. And yet, in spite of Moses' recognition of the reality of divorce, from the beginning, Jesus says, it has not been this way. In spite of Moses' instructions about the aftermath of divorce, from the beginning, divorce was not part of the plan. Divorce was not part of God's design. And he says in verse 9, if you do get divorced... Any subsequent marriage to someone else is adultery, except in the case of immorality. And the common interpretation of that is, except if your spouse has committed adultery. There is an even more strict interpretation of what Jesus means here in verse 9, discussed by John and Paul Feinberg in their book, Ethics for a Brave New World which has to do with the Jewish betrothal period and which I find intriguing and which you can ask me about later if you like, but I'm not going to go into it now. But even if we just go with the more common interpretation here, that Jesus is saying that divorce and remarriage equals adultery unless your spouse has committed adultery prior or, you know, unless the divorce is because your spouse has committed adultery, even if we just go with that, we still have a strong statement. And if we go with it, it is perhaps Jesus' way of doing what Moses had done, which is to acknowledge the reality of divorce in a fallen world and to give instructions concerning its aftermath, but without approving of divorce itself. If you divorce because of your spouse's immorality, Jesus is not saying in verse 9 or anywhere else that such a breakup of the marriage is God's design. He's not condoning it, but he is saying that under such a circumstance, you're not committing adultery if you remarry. But in other cases, remarrying after divorce is adultery, presumably because God still recognizes the original marriage. In God's eyes, you're still married to the prior spouse. Now, that doesn't mean that divorced and remarried people should then turn around and divorce their current spouses and go back to the originals. Deuteronomy 24 explicitly forbids that, right? 
And so if someone is divorced and remarried, they must now go on being faithful to the spouse to whom they're now committed. But if you have been divorced and remarried, except for the exception here in verse 9, it's well to recognize, if you haven't yet done so, that both the divorce and the remarriage broke God's design. And if you're thinking about divorce, or if you ever think about divorce, or if you're thinking about remarriage after divorce, or if you ever think about remarriage after divorce, it is imperative that you hear and that you heed what Jesus says in these verses. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, hearing these things, the disciples said to him in verse 10, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry Perhaps, says William Hendrickson from this verse, perhaps even the disciples shared in the more lax view of divorce that was current in those days. Or perhaps they realized the great implications, even with the caveat in verse 9, of Jesus saying that divorce is just not a part of the marriage design. Perhaps they realized the great implications of Jesus saying that what God has joined together, let no man separate. But in any case, thinking about what they've heard, they suggest that given what they've just heard, maybe it would just be better to remain single. And Jesus says in verse 11 that for some people it is. For some people it is better not to marry. But notice that the reason he gives for singleness is not the same as those of the disciples. The disciples assume that it is better not to marry because of the prohibition on divorce. But Jesus says that a good reason to choose singleness would be, verse 12, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Probably so that a person might serve God, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 7, more undistractedly. Some people are born eunuchs, verse 12a. They're born, in other words, of some physical difficulty that will prevent them from marriage. Some people are made eunuchs by men, which I think refers to the ancient practice of emasculating men who are going to serve in the king's harem so as to make them no sexual threat. And some people, Jesus says, choose to become eunuchs, not physical eunuchs, but they choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Not all men can accept this statement, he says. Not all men can accept the idea of it being better not to marry, presumably because not all men are called by God not to marry. But those who are, including if there are any tonight, those who are called in this way should go forward 
with God's calling. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So we've been on this second point now for quite some time, maybe so long that you've forgotten what the second point was or that there even were any points. But let me remind you, we thought in verse 2 about Jesus' compassion and power. And now we're considering in verses 3 through 12, Jesus' powerful teaching. And this is powerful teaching indeed. Jesus has just held up extremely lofty views, both of the sacredness of marriage and of the call that some of God's people will have to singleness, to choosing singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Both are valuable and high callings in God's sight. Jesus speaks of them both loftily here, and I urge you to pursue them, whichever one God has called you to, to pursue it with a great sense of its preciousness to God. And if you're not sure to which God has called you, be patient until you know. And don't do anything in the meantime that would mar the preciousness of the calling God has for you, whether in marriage or in intentional singleness. So we've considered Jesus' compassion and power, and I hope we marvel at it. We've considered his powerful teaching, and I hope we marvel both at what he teaches and at the one who does the teaching in verses 3 through 12. And then let's marvel finally at his heart for children. Jesus' heart for children in verses 13 through 15. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. The disciples on this occasion did not have a heart for children, but Jesus did. And it's amazing when you lay verses 13 through 15 side by side with verses 3 through 12. In verses 3 through 12, we see this Jesus who is able to take this difficult question that's meant as a test and to answer it so profoundly and so well, to deal in just careful, exalted theology here. And then he, in verses 13 through 15, is putting his hands on the head of children and blessing them. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus wanted these children to come to him. He desired to lay hands on them and to pray over them. And kids tonight, I hope that's an encouragement to you. Children, you are not too little for Jesus to be concerned about you. You are not too small to come to God's Son. Jesus has a heart for children. And I encourage you, young ones, to believe that and to go to Him and to trust Him as your Savior and as your Lord. But there's a word for the rest of us here too, isn't there? Because in this passage, there are not only children, but there are some people who are bringing children to Jesus, verse 13, and there are other people who are hindering them from coming, at least who are trying to. And oh, we ought not to be among that second group. We ought not be among those who are hindering children from coming to Jesus, but who are positively bringing them to him by means of our prayers 
by means of our pleading with them to turn to Christ as Lord and Savior, by means of our bringing them to this house to hear his word, by means of us instructing them, some of us, in this house as we teach them, by means of us parents and grandparents instructing them in his word in our own houses, teaching them his word and his ways and his gospel. Are you bringing children to Jesus? Parents, grandparents, are you bringing your grandchildren to Jesus? Are you bringing the children of this church, of your neighborhood, of your wider family to Jesus by means of your prayers for them, by means of your testimony to them, by means perhaps of your teaching of them? Let us not hinder the children from coming, verse 14, and let us positively bring them in what ways we can to his feet, seeking his blessing upon their little lives and upon their eternal souls. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, belongs to such as these, by which Jesus may mean that even children can be saved, that even children can repent and trust in Christ, that even children can become citizens of his kingdom, or the words such as these could mean that this is a reference to how the kingdom belongs to those who become like children, as we heard Jesus teach in the previous chapter. Both are true, right? Children can be saved. You, children, can be members of Christ's kingdom. And it's true that people, children and adults alike, must be childlike in order to be saved. And whichever one of these Jesus means, he gives it here as a motive for not hindering actual children. Children are important to Jesus, both in terms of the value of their own precious souls and in terms of the example that they give us of what is required for entry into the kingdom ourselves. And so let us marvel here at Jesus' heart for children, and let us pray he gives us such a heart ourselves. How wonderful is our Jesus in his compassion and power, in his powerful teaching, and here in his heartbeat for children, so that we should say all of our days with John Newton, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear.